People know what makes them tick. I believe everyone has a purpose portfolio and work is one proverbial stock within the portfolio of purpose that you have. And remote work enables you to invest in the broad, in a broad portfolio. What makes you, you? What gives you purpose? What fills you up? What's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Karshovsky, and welcome to episode 160 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I am so excited to introduce you to Darren Murph, the head of remote at GitLab. Darren is the original head of remote, helping to create the position at GitLab and was instrumental in the creation of their now legendary remote work structure. During this interview, Darren discussed how being the most prolific blogger in the world, something he holds a Guinness World Record for, helped him become the head of remote at GitLab, how young professionals who have only worked remotely can grow in their career without putting face-to-face time at an office, and why remote work is only the first domino of a much larger societal shift. But before we jump into the interview, make sure you subscribe to my newsletter, Remote Insider where every Monday I share the most important developments in the areas of remote work, online business, tech, and the digital nomad lifestyle. It has been called mandatory reading by other subscribers, and if you enjoy this podcast, I guarantee you will also love being a Remote Insider subscriber. You can subscribe to that at thatremotelife.com forward slash remote insider, all one word, and it's completely free. Also, I'd like to thank Safety Wing for sponsoring the show. I will tell you a bit more about the awesome things they're working on later in the episode. As always, if you enjoy this episode, share it on Twitter or Instagram and tag me at Mitkoka, M-I-T-K-O-K-A, or send it to a friend you think will enjoy it. And while you're there, give me a follow as well. I've been really ramping up my Twitter content, and I'm about to do a month straight of Twitter threads all about the topics that we discuss on this podcast. So uh, if that sounds interesting, I'd love to connect with you over there. Finally, if you haven't left a review for this podcast already, please consider leaving one wherever you listen to podcasts. I would really, really appreciate that. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Darren Murph. All right, Darren, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, I am uh, completely stoked to have you here. Uh, we have to say a uh, quick thanks to uh, our mutual friend Chase for uh, connecting us and and you know uh, getting you to come on the pod. But man, we have there's so many different directions we can go in. But first, for people who maybe don't know you, uh, a very quick intro. You are the head of remote at GitLab, and you are the first head of remote. In fact, I believe you were called uh, the Oracle of Remote Work by CNBC which I think putting Oracle to anything, you, you've officially achieved cool status. Um, but before you became the head of remote at GitLab, and that's something that we're going to talk a lot about, one of the things that really uh, piqued my curiosity is that you actually started out in, in the writing field. You were, you were a journalist. You worked for Engadget for many, many years. Uh, is it correct that I heard that you're a Guinness World Record holder on the number of blog posts ever written or something like that? 
That is correct. I have a Guinness World Record as the planet's most prolific professional blogger. So for a four-year period, I pinned over 17,000 articles, which breaks down to an article published every two hours, 24-7. Every two hours, 24-7, 365 for four consecutive years, which is wild. And I actually grew the record after that. Uh, I think that was 6 million words or so at the time. And it's, it's, I think it's well beyond 10 million now. So is anyone competing with you for that title? Like, is it like you and like one other guy, you know, like in, you know, in Romania, just going at it or something like that? <laughs> I think it's safe. It stood for 12 years wow. and the, the time component of it is going to be the tough thing. If you give someone 70 years, they can surely write more than that. But the time component, it has to be prolific. That time element is going to be really tough to beat. That was a special moment in time where we built a globally distributed team that was maximally efficient. And there was a lot to write about. That was the era of the first iPhone. And so it was a, an explosive time for consumer electronics. It was a, a fun journey. Yeah, because I, I saw somewhere that you published something like 28 blog posts in one day or something like that during an event. 58. Oh, 50. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I cut you down. <laughs> by like 58 blog posts. That's okay. That's impressive. So what it does, it was a blog post, like three lines of like something like that, or, or what I guess constitutes as a blog post to be legally no. accepted into that number. Right. No, they asked that. Look, um, those posts uh, ranged from anywhere from 300 to 900 words. Oh, Some of them wow. were longer. Okay. Some mm. of them were longer, but uh, 300 was, was the floor. And look, it's hard to get a Guinness World Record. When we applied for this, the team at Guinness World Records reached out. They were fascinated by it. They did not have a lot of editorial records at the time. So this was very much uncharted territory for them. They spent six months trying to disprove the claim. <laughs> they asked for all kinds of records from backend infrastructure to confirm dates and timestamps wow. and that I actually wrote these articles, that they weren't just machine generated text on a website. It was an incredibly diligent and rigorous process. And after six months, uh, they said, yeah, you know what? You you have the record. And they sent me a plaque from their headquarters and it, it hangs on my wall. Pretty special day. Do you do you display the plaque the same way that like YouTubers display the, the YouTube play button? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, do you just like, do. position it strategically? <laughs> so on all calls, it's in the background. I've had it in the past. The office I'm in right now does not have it, but it needs to make the jump over here. It's definitely something that I worked very hard for and, and I'm proud of. And uh, so I know a few people who have been in the Forbes, like 30 under 30. And one of the things that they've told me is that, um, you know, like the the award itself, like sure, you how you feel like cool for like a week, right? But then after the really nice benefit of, of being in the Forbes 30 under 30 is that there's like a back end, like community of all kinds of obviously very accomplished folks that have been in there. Is there like a community like a back-end community of like guinness world record holders that you're now you know you can like message the guy who's i don't know eating the most hot dogs or something like that that's interesting if it exists i'm not a part of it but it probably exists the unique thing for me is every now and again you'll meet another guinness world record holder and it's usually at the most 
just the oddest times. <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal thing because you immediately have something extraordinary in common. Uh, and then what ends up happening is you both celebrate so boisterously that anyone within earshot of your conversation <laughs> Everyone knows. is now clued in. And then what ends up happening is people will say, wow, I've never met a world record holder before. And then we get to say, now you have. And so the, the, from my perspective, the community is you end up meeting a lot of people that um, always wish they knew a Guinness world record holder. Those books are well marketed. Pretty much anyone in the last 50 years has grown up knowing about it. They've read the book. They've flipped through it. They've seen it somewhere. They've seen some of these amazing feats of mankind. And they always think, oh, those people aren't like me. And so to meet one, you're like, oh, wow, these are these are people. Yeah. And uh, that, that part has been pretty special. That's, that's awesome. Uh, so kind of going a little bit further into your journey, uh, I'm going to ask a, uh, I'm going to ask a two part question here, which you're not supposed to do, but we'll bend the rules a little bit. Uh, I noticed that you worked for the points guy. What was the best part about working for the points guy? And how did you end up taking this obviously like really deep experience of being a writer? And how did you transition that into then, you know, becoming an expert in, like the head of remote space? Great questions, plural. The points guy was a phenomenal journey. I'll have two answers to that question. Two best parts of working there. One was the extraordinary places that you're able to travel and the extraordinary access that you get. So uh, by the way, that's answer number one. Answer number two is I was able to work with some folks that I had worked with prior in different uh, companies. And in many ways, it was getting the band back together. And there are a few things as deeply satisfying in a career journey as getting to work with the best humans in the world multiple times on different projects in different seasons of life. It is so very special. So that happened there. And it was a big part of why I went there. I got to uh, get the band back together. I think it's one of those things that well, like when you hear the name and you kind of hear like what it's about, you don't understand just how big the points guy is as like a, a publication, as a company, everything like that. At that point, when you worked there, I'm assuming they'd already, because they got funding, right? Or they got bought by someone. So were you just getting to, essentially, was your job to to fly on the different like planes and 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 do like the, the reviews or what was your specific sort of like job title there? TPG, as we affectionately call it, was a Red Ventures property by the time that I arrived. My role was very multifaceted. I touched pretty much anything related to editorial. Uh, the thing that I focused most on was reviewing on-site travel and covering the Delta beat. So I'm, I love Delta. Uh, I've got over one and a half million miles flown on Delta. They've been very good to me over the years. And this was an amazing opportunity as an aviation geek, but also someone just really, really interested in the operational underpinnings of Delta. I was able to get really close to the airline and made some really good friends that um, designed their new interiors and retrofitted old aircraft. I mean, just an, an aviation lover's dream come true. I was able to be on a couple of first flights. There was a flight from uh, Seattle to Shanghai where they flew a brand new plane, a brand new interior. And I was on that flight and it's a cabin full of other people who bought a ticket specifically for that flight to be the first in the world to fly on one of these amazing 
machines, it's really easy to take airplanes for granted. Airplanes are marvels. They are absolute marvels in what they can accomplish. And as humans, it's a lot easier to ooh and ah over a new Ferrari versus a new airplane. But the airplane is is a way harder feat to, to pull off. And so it was a lot of fun getting to get to know uh, the airline a lot more and travel to some some pretty exceptional places around the world and, and share that with folks who read. Yeah. And I think, you know, you, you do make a good point here about you don't think about how crazy it is that we can get in this like metal tube and fly all over the world. But I will say the one time when you think about it is when you're in a plane and you're like over the ocean and you're like, I mean, it's kind of crazy that there's this like relatively small thin wing that's kind of holding you above the air. And that's like, you know, definitely when you think about it and maybe have a minor freak out if you're like me. Uh, did you get to keep the points? Like when you when you got to when you got to fly on these planes, like were you uh, and take these flights? Did you get to uh, keep those for the personal uh, points bank? In most cases, yes, and that's nice. one of the the benefits of business travel in general. Is if you know how to leverage the loyalty programs, you can capture a ton of value just by going to work or right. doing everyday things, and you can unlock some really in, incredible journeys. Um, many years ago, uh, this was before I, I joined TPG, I had s- saved up enough points in various repositories uh, to assemble an eight-day, eight or nine-day trip to the Maldives and stay stay at the Park Hyatt Maldives. Uh, and we almost got there and back in business class. We got there in business class uh, and it was economy on the way back. But it ended up being uh, a value of around $25,000 if you would have paid for that travel out of pocket. And um, I think I ended up paying around 1200 out of pocket and, and the rest were, were points. And it's one of those kind of red pill moments that if you ever understand the potential, uh, it's, it's just remarkable the the journeys that that you can go on and i've i've been a fan of travel forever and actually it kind of plays into where my career journey has has brought me to now travel for me was um, just an amazing opportunity to experience other cultures and and remind myself that the world is bigger than the bubble that i'm that i'm currently in and i found that the more i traveled the deeper i appreciated other cultures, other points of view, other perspectives. It just makes you a, a much more empathetic uh, and understanding person. And sure, it's, it's great to go to the Maldives and see one of the most beautiful places in the world. But one of the best parts of that trip in particular was getting on a boat and going to a non-resort island and seeing people who were born and raised there live their day-to-day lives some of that trip is seared in my memory. I'm like, wow, what an exceptional life these people live in the middle of the ocean. It's so dramatically different than my own. And it's it's cool to have that deeper appreciation. Was what was the what was the first trip that you ever took internationally? And was it a love at first sight sort of experience? Or did you have to go through a few travel experiences abroad to kind of fall in love with it? I'm smiling because the, the first answer to this question is, is not very exciting. Uh, my parents took me to Germany 
um, when I was a kiddo and we went to visit my cousin who was stationed there in the U.S. military. And it was fairly uneventful. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I remember the food was good, but I also remember that I was like, I, I want to be home and play video games. You know, <laughs> typical, typical child response to something truly extraordinary. Um, but the, the first international trip I remember going on as, as my own adult was to Costa Rica. And the first 24 hours of that trip was an abject disaster. <laughs> Classic. An, abs- an absolute disaster. So the flight was massively delayed. We ended up missing a connection. Uh, we got there on the last flight in for the evening, which depending on perspective is pretty amazing. At least we didn't have to s- stay overnight. But by the time we arrived, it was absolute uh, downpour, like a monsoon. All of the rental car facilities were closed except for one. I spoke no Spanish whatsoever. So I try to go to the rental car reservation or uh, that, I, that I have and, and they're closed. So I go to the, the one that's open and they proceed to extort me because of course, you know, why not? You know, it's like, I gotta, I gotta pay whatever I gotta pay to, to get in this car. And then I, I try to drive through the jungle in the monsoon and the pouring rain. You know, at every turn I'm thinking, this is the end. Uh, but we we finally made it, and after about a day of kind of processing the trauma of, like I have no idea what I'm doing and just kind of living through it, it ended up being a, a great trip. But I learned a lot about when you venture into someone else's domain. Respect that. It was a great lesson of, th- like this isn't Kansas anymore. If you go somewhere else, respect the privilege that it is to visit there, but understand that you're not home anymore. There are different sets of rules and norms and culture and all of the things. And it was this amazing wake-up call of like, whoa, the world is is bigger than I thought. And um, that was kind of the beginning of becoming a more adaptable person was running into all of those roadblocks. Because when you research a vacation, of course, all the photos are just wonderful as if nothing could possibly go sideways. And then there's the reality of it. And I've, um, I've become a lot more adaptable through experiences like that. Well, you know, that reminds me of the, um, Ivan Chouinard quote, you know, the the founder of Patagonia, which which I love. Uh, it's uh, it's something like adventure begins when all your plans go wrong or something like that. And it's so true that like you can like plan an adventure, but if you plan it, it's never quite an adventure, right? Like what you need is for things to go sideways and for you to have to like figure it out on the spot. And that's where like really great stories come from is like when all oh, this kind of stuff happened and, and I had to figure it out. Uh, on the spot, but I want to kind of transition into your experience as head of remote because uh, I, I mean it's it's I'm so fortunate to have you on here to talk about this as the head of remote, the, the very first head of remote. How did you end up, you know, going from being this prolific writer and blogger to then becoming the head of remote and getting this position, which at this time there was no there was no guide for it, right? Like you couldn't say. Hey, you know this company, this company, and this company have heads of remote positions. You sort of invented this comp- this this position. So, how did you leverage, you know, your your writing experience, and how did you go from writing to becoming a head of remote? And how did that conversation even happen? Like, did you just just did you just pitch it to Sid, the CEO uh, over there at GitLab, or how how did that happen? 
you could say that being a great writer helped me write a job description <laughs> that never existed before. Uh, I had to throw that in. Um, it won't surprise you to hear that the origin story of this role is documented in the GitLab handbook. And so we have an entire page dedicated to this role and I've grabbed as many job descriptions as I could find along the way and open source those. And we're sharing all the knowledge we can so that other organizations who are looking to instill their own dedicated remote leader, they can look to us and they're not starting from scratch the, the way that we did. But I will take you back to early 2019 GitLab was around 700 people at the time. It was an all remote organization from inception, and it was already a pioneer in the world of work. The remote manifesto was already published. Sid's deep conviction on remote work was well known. And when I joined, my initial remit was to add taxonomy and add codification to what was already a great process, but to build a deeper documented foundation on how we worked remotely. Because as we were scaling as a global organization, you can't rely on learning via osmosis. Anything which is implicit much must be made explicit. There cannot be any unwritten rules in a distributed setting. And so my early remit was to document as much as possible, to observe, to see how we were doing things and write it down such that it could be appropriately scaled for example, injected into our onboarding. We added a remote first fundamentals module so that everyone who onboarded into the company also onboarded into GitLab's unique remote first principles. So my initial title was not head of remote. Uh, we hired or uh, we, we held a half day symposium about remote work in San Francisco in October of 2019. It sounds kind of funny to go in person to talk about remote work, but remember <laughs> this was pre-COVID and our thesis was if we want to evangelize and spread remote work, we have to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. So we had to meet people in person because we were, we were changing things. It hadn't changed yet. So we did this conference. It was amazing. Uh, and then and after the conference, uh, a gentleman named Andreas Klinger, who I respect deeply and look up to as a, as a remote visionary, yeah. he was chatting with myself and Sid, the CEO of GitLab, and we were talking about this role and the things that I was doing at GitLab since I had joined and the plans we had. And in typical Andreas fashion, he says, Sid, just call him the head of remote. He's doing all things remote. Don't complicate this. Change the title to head of remote. And so Sid went home and he opened a GitLab merge request and he literally changed the title. And so we used GitLab, the product, to write the job title and the rest was history. So I didn't know that Andreas was kind of the one who, quote unquote, like came up with the idea and, and then accepted that as, as the term. That, that, that's really crazy. It is crazy. And it just goes to show how important spontaneity and relationships are. And it goes to show the power of iteration. And it's one of GitLab's core values. And in a, in a great distributed team, you really have to practice iteration. And we say that it's the hardest value to embrace because it's very unnatural for people to celebrate and ship the unfinished, to be satisfied with smaller minimum viable change to celebrate the boring solutions instead of the shiny polished thing at the end. But there's so much innovation in iteration. If you 
really lean into it. And that job title was a great example of that. We, we started it in one place and then we got feedback from trusted people like Andreas. And then we used that feedback to iterate and make it better. And we landed on something amazing because what we ended up doing was creating a movement where now companies are coming to me and to us to help draft job descriptions for creating roles similar to this as they begin the process of re-architecting their operational underpinnings to be more remote fluent and to be more ready for the future of work. We could have never predicted that in October of 2019, but had we not been willing to iterate, maybe we wouldn't have created the movement. Yeah, and I want to ask a bit of a meta question here. Uh, From the point of view of GitLab, why do all this work that you guys are doing in the world of remote? I mean, you guys are leaders in remote work. You're putting out um, really great reports and really like creating a, a depth of value and knowledge about what it is to work remotely and how to do it. And you're doing all of that publicly. And it's not, you know, I'm not a developer. I don't have anything to do. I had to kind of like, we were about to do this interview and for the 15th time in my life, I've sat down to figure out what a Git is because I still don't quite know what that is. But, you know, it just shows that like what you do as a company is so different from, well, not so different, but it kind of does, it, it, they could be completely separate things. So I guess my question is like, why do all of this so publicly and put out all this depth of knowledge instead of keeping it private? Because I'm sure that, you know, it would improve your IP and so on and so forth. It's core to our mission. So GitLab's mission is to help build a world where everyone can contribute. And in order to do that, you have to share things in public because people have to have something, a baseline that they can contribute to. This is very much uh, in line with the ethos of open source communities around the world, which is this deeply held fundamental belief that if you are transparent and you build in public, it makes you better. It makes your business more durable. It makes you more informed. The opposite of that is this scarcity-based mindset, which is there is a fixed pie and any piece that I don't have, someone else will have, and it's a piece that I cannot get back. We look at things through the lens of opportunity, which is if we build this for our own team to make us more operationally sound as a remote team, but we do it in a way that we can transparently share it with the world, then perhaps the world could learn from it. Perhaps the world sees it and it sparks additional innovation that then it shares back with us. And perhaps our own beliefs get stronger and challenged because we were transparent about it and people contributed back. And this isn't just theory. Early on in the pandemic, Dropbox decided to become what they coined a virtual first organization. They were going to keep some real estate, but they were completely changing the way they thought about work. It would be virtual first, not office first. And they dove deep into our handbook. Their VP of design, Alistair Simpson, Simpson is uh, an, an amazing individual. He dug deep in our handbook and was very inspired by it. And many of the things that they implemented came from the GitLab remote playbook. But here's what's interesting. They also put out a playbook of their own. It inspired them to also build in public. And so naturally, 
I read through every word of that. And there was an amazing section in there on making asynchronous workflows a more natural, normal part of the workplace. And it was a simple recommendation, which is sample regrets for moving work forward asynchronously. So it gave people permission to copy and paste a simple sentence if they wanted to recommend async over sync. So imagine you get a request from the CEO and you're an intern. And this, the request is, hey, let's jump on a call to talk about this. Well, it's a bit awkward if you reply back with something along the lines of, we're a virtual first organization. I'm trying to improve my asynchronous muscle. Would you be so kind as to write down your thoughts in Dropbox paper and tag me in it, and I will share my thoughts back to you? Maybe the intern is that bold, but probably not. And so what they did is they documented copy and pasteable regrets such that it eliminated that awkwardness of seniority and it normalized the language around we are changing process. We're changing culture. It does feel unnatural, but we're going to normalize talking about it until it becomes a common part of our workflow. And so we added that into the GitLab handbook and linked back to Dropbox. And so it, it's amazing that the GitLab handbook has been improved and made better by other organizations willing to be transparent and open source their own knowledge. So because I'm, I'm very curious about this, so what you're saying is that in this scenario, what they wanted to do was enable anyone in the company, no matter what their seniority was, to talk back, if you want to use that terminology, to anyone more senior than them by saying like, hey, it's okay for you to say this if they're stepping out of async bounds and kind of like correct them. That's amazing. That's yeah. awesome. And you've seen this happen with, uh, with well-being. Like one of the things that we implemented early on in my tenure at GitLab, uh, we saw after the pandemic really, uh, really started in March of 2020, the amount of time that people took off was going down. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. You don't want people burning out. You don't want people just using work as a form of escapism. And so we leveraged a simple piece of technology, uh, again, a boring solution, where we automated a Slack direct message. And at the beginning of every month, it you could opt into this, it would send you a message, a Slack DM, and it would say, hey, it's the first working day of the month. Have you considered what time you might take off this month? What adventures you might plan? Mm, Check that. out our handbook page if you need inspiration. And also, if you feel like your current workload prohibits you from taking any time off this month, copy and paste this message in the one-on-one -on -one agenda with your manager. So this normalized, it like it was technology giving anyone in the company permission to talk about the importance of rest, the importance of wellness, because not everybody is comfortable just bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely. You go into a one-on-one -on -one and there's a bunch of awesome status updates on the work you're moving forward. It takes a bit more boldness to put a line in there about, hey, I really need some time off because rest is a part of work. So we use technology to uh, to help with that. And Dropbox's version of that was normalizing conversation around asynchronous work. And I thought it was fascinating. I wanted to take a quick break and tell you about our sponsor for today's episode, Safety Wing. 
As a longtime digital nomad and remote worker, I can tell you from experience that travel medical insurance is extremely important. The more time you spend abroad, the more you increase your chances that eventually something will happen. Maybe you will get sick and need to see a doctor, or you're going to crash your scooter in Bali and have to get a cast. Either way, figuring out how to pay for that procedure in a foreign country is not what you're going to want to deal with at that moment. And that's why I love SafetyWing. Their services are designed for people like you and me. Their Nomad Insurance is a global travel medical insurance with emergency coverage across 185 countries. The remote health package, on the other hand, provides remote companies and employees with global health insurance. Not to mention that SafetyWing is also funding the Plumia Project, which is working to establish the first ever country on the internet. So if you're still nomading unprotected, what are you doing? Head over to safetywing.com and find the insurance package that's right for you. And also, consider using the affiliate link in the show notes, which will directly support me in continuing to produce this podcast. So thanks again to SafetyWing for sponsoring us, and now back to the episode. So I got a uh, I got a request for a question uh, from my dad. Interesting enough, so my dad is a uh, he's a personal trainer and like works a lot in like wellness. And the interesting thing with him was, uh, so I've been remote since like 2016, and I've been telling him like you need to you need to figure out how to build your business remote. You need to figure out how to build your business remote. So finally, he did, and so now he's all remote like like the two of us. And one of the questions that he had was. How do you, what is the best way that you've found and that your team has found to recover from working online all the time? Because I'm sure that there's stuff in, in the playbook, like you talked about and in, in your handbook, but, um, what are some of your favorite ways to sort of recover and come back, you know, uh, every day, ready, ready to get work done and not burn out. This is going to be different for every person. And the reason I say that is every person recharges differently. If you ask an extrovert how they rejuvenate, they'll say, well, I go to the after party after the gala. If you asked an introvert how they recharge, they say, I go directly to bed after the gala. (laughs) So both are fully acceptable answers. And the beauty of remote work is it allows the most inclusive answer to that, like recharge in a way that that works works for you. but to answer this more deeply, it's it's interesting that you bring this up because it's one of the things that I've most recently worked on at GitLab. It really comes down to management philosophy and this concept of manager of one. So I have loved this leadership principle since I've joined GitLab. The principle is everyone is a manager of one. Everyone is a manager of their own time, attention, and awareness to wellness. There's only so much an organization can do. Some of it is on you, the person, to monitor your ebbs and flows because every day is going to potentially look different. And you need to acknowledge that and be aware of that. And what we've done is we've documented GitLab's management philosophy. We're calling it MEC, Managing So Everyone Can Contribute, M-E-C-C. And I'm super excited about it because it provides... It provides documentation to something that I've known and we've believed for a really long time, but it cements that there's a philosophy around running an organization a certain way that enables not only everyone to contribute, but it enables people to be managers of their own time and attention and to manage their days in a more individualized way. 
So my get my hope is that we can create a movement around mech the same way that we did the remote playbook. Because what I see happening in the world is we've reached phase one of remote work, which is an understanding of location independence. This aha moment that you can decouple the results that you drive from the physical piece of geography. But the next frontier of this is the way more exciting one, which is time independence. If you can decouple your work from linear time, now you can design a much more fulfilling and dynamic life. And to your pop's question, when you're able to design a more fulfilling life, you end up being empty a lot less. The goal is to need one of those massive deliberate recharge um, periods much less frequently because you're operating in a more natural rhythm with work and life and finding harmony in the ebbs and flows of when you're working. I'm a big fan of the nonlinear workday, stopping and starting work, depending on your peak productivity hours. That's the goal. And granted, it look, it's utopia, but we need to talk about it. You have to talk about the philosophy to get there if you ever want to start anywhere and iterate toward that goal. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you touched on so many important things there because like right now, if you if you look at the news, right, everyone's talking about remote work, everyone's talking about hybrid work and a lot of these like minutia of, of the style of working. But the thing that I'm really interested in that, that I keep talking about whenever somebody will give me the chance is remote work is the first domino of a much, much, much bigger domino fall, right? Because like you said, you know, when you start working remotely and location independently, the next thing to follow is time independence. And when that domino falls, now you now you get in some very interesting global effects of, okay, well, now somebody from, you know, um, Pakistan can work with a US company perfectly naturally, even though they're in different time zones, right? And then we figure that out. That's when you really decentralize opportunity because opportunity for the longest time has been centralized to where are the economic centers of the world, right? Like my parents immigrated to the United States because they had a lot more economic ability here, a lot more opportunity here. Maybe someone in five years could do the same or even right now could do the same still living in Bulgaria and working for an American company, which I think is, is very, very exciting. And another way to really highlight the challenge we have ahead of us now is if you ask a hundred people anywhere in the world, what do you think of when you hear the word remote? I bet the vast majority of them will answer something related to geography. It has to do with where you are. But actually remote is about how you work. Yes, where you are plays a part of it, but that's only because you work differently. And I think we will have achieved a major milestone in the global narrative when we can push the conversation about the word remote closer to how work gets done, how your operations need to change to embrace a distributed workforce, and less about the geography. The geography will become secondary. And so much of the global narrative right now is on return to office, as in remote is only fixated on where you work. And my plea for organizations thinking about this is you're going to exert energy either way. It is better exerted rethinking how you work 
and changing some of those workflows that may have served you for the past 40 years, but they won't serve you for the next 40. The workforce will only become more distributed, not less. And it's worth auditing those workflows and your values and your culture now to build a more durable workforce for the generations to come. And I think one of the annoying parts of remote work becoming as mainstream as it is now because of the pandemic was that remote work and work from home kind of became one and the same to a majority of people. And the thing, you know, a lot of the times I get pushback from family and friends who are not in our world who are like, I don't like working from home. I want to like socialize. I want to get out of my house. I'm like, I get it. You know, like that's, it's not the same thing. I also like get really sick of working from home all the time. Remote work is not about that. It's about working from wherever you want to and wherever you feel best, whether that's, you know, in a co-working space, a coffee shop, whatever it may be, and making that fit around your life so that you can go drop your kids off and pick them up, you know, from school or, or whatever it may be. So uh, th that's another thing that I would love to decouple is this idea of work from home being remote work and those two uh, being exactly the same. But I want to dive in a little bit on, on a bit more specific of a question because this has been in the news recently. Uh, and I think it's a very, very important thing to, to discuss. So there was an article recently uh, from CNBC, uh, funny enough, the, the same uh, news media outlet that called you the Oracle of Remote Work that was titled, uh, this is the exact title, it was Millennials and Gen Z, Your Days of Remote Work Could Be Numbered, says author. And this author that they interviewed was essentially talking about how remote work is actually impacting uh, younger professionals way more than older ones because these younger professionals have not yet uh, developed their strength. They're not growing as quickly as they would have liked to see, you know, or as previous generations have in the office. And to me, this was just, I mean, to me, it was like fixing, like not going to the the key there and like fixing like the origin of this problem but kind of like trying to like fix the, the top level the top level issue but i do think it raises an important question of because for me the answer there is we need to rethink how we grow and how we get mentorship from a remote first standpoint instead of just trying to like do that from like an office perspective but the question there is and this is what i want to get your opinion on is when you do have young professionals coming in. Maybe they're coming to work at GitLab. They've never worked in an office before. They're new to their profession. They want to grow in that profession. Uh, how do you advise that they do so? How do they get mentorship? How do they grow uh, inside of their career uh, from a remote first standpoint? Yeah, this is such an important topic. I, I first want to say we've got to be careful not to try to pull the past into the present. And so the, the thought that, oh, the old way is better, it largely stems from a place of we have, we have a new kitchen, but the same old kitchen equipment. So we've moved into a new world. We have a new workspace, but we're still using office first tools, products, norms, cultures, and values. Why is there any surprise that there's some friction and incompatibility right, there? Of course. We have companies that have culture and values and, and tool stacks built specifically to create efficiency and productivity in an office. So when you drastically change the landscape on which it works, it shouldn't be a surprise. My position here is hang tight. 
because COVID has enabled product market fit for a new suite of tools that will be built for distributed and virtual first organizations. Even the tool that we're using now to record this podcast, some of it probably was developed in an office. You look at Zoom, for example, it's connecting the world right now. Zoom is an office first tool that we are just creatively using in a virtual first way, but it's not ideally suited. So there's, there will soon be a new suite of tools that will help us bring something new in instead of us longing uh, for the past. Directly to mentorship and guidance in a remote setting, what I have found very interesting is that if you document your ways of working, kind of the need to know, if your onboarding process is rigorous, People have an easier time getting up to speed and they can do it much more efficiently. A great example of this is, is the README. It's the personal operating manual. So if you search for Darren Murph GitLab README, you'll find a one pager and it's a personal operating manual about me. And it includes things about idiosyncrasies that either I have discovered or other people have told me about. It's things like how I prefer to be communicated with, what my typical day looks like, so if someone was joining my team or on a working group with me, it may take them six weeks or six months to learn all of that if we were in an office together every single workday. But in a virtual setting, you could read that in 10 minutes and you have a six month head start on building rapport with me. That sounds like a much better deal by every possible metric than the, the old way. So I don't, I don't buy the narrative that uh, the new generation are, are going to be in a bad spot because they don't have the old way of building rapport. We, the older generation, have to build something better for them so that they can inject themselves into this new way of working with new ways of building rapport, like the README as an example. And GitLab specifically does an incredible job of documenting what you need to know, as well as how to informally communicate. In our onboarding process, we ask that every new hire set up 10 coffee chats. We call these coffee chats, informal chats with anyone in the company. You can take a look at the org chart, pick a name or a title that looks interesting to you and just reach out to them and put time on their calendar. Imagine how much more difficult that would be if you had seven offices spread across the world, you may never see or hear of any of these people, but in a virtual space, everyone is one click away. It's much more inclusive. So it's about bridging the gap with documentation. It's about setting the right expectations. And I think it's about listening. Ask what the new generation wants in a workplace. How do they want to build rapport? To some degree, you don't know what you don't know, but also the new generation of workers grew up in a digital first world. They met people virtually first and then in person. They managed financial transactions digitally first and then they walked into a physical bank. So if I think to some degree, if they ever did. And so to some degree, I think we're selling them short. We need to have eyes wide open, ears wide open. We'll be okay. The kids are going to be all right. And they know a lot more about technology than I think some of the, uh, authors of these reports may give them credit for. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Like one of the things that I always, and I love this 10 coffee chats uh, idea because like, I think, I think the issue is that a lot of the information that is being presented to people who are just entering the workforce um, is 
old school, right? Like go and network and like go to uh, after work uh, cocktail hour or whatever it may be so you can meet others and become friends and, you know, blah, 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 whatever. But they're, they're not being taught the same skill sets for a virtual world. Like one of the things that I always say is you want to be known in a certain career, start a podcast and interview the top 10 people in the field that you can get access to. doesn't matter if no one listens to it. You have just now connected with the top 10 people in that field and you've created something that then if you go and you apply for a job in that field, you can literally say, look at the the product that I've created, the thing that I've put effort and intention into. And like that's going to go way further than, you know, uh, an internship on your CV or, or whatever it may be. Wholeheartedly agree with that. And before we leave this topic, I do want to, I'd be remiss if I didn't say leverage in person as a strategy. I realized that my last answer involved all virtual first advice, but the truth is humans are communal relational beings. We gain a lot by building rapport and breaking bread with other people in person. So if that is useful for your company's onboarding, do it. Build onboarding cohorts, fly them to a centralized place. It would be an amazing way to onboard them quickly into your culture and help people feel more comfortable. Leverage in-person as a strategy. The trick is you have to be intentional about it. When you were at a co-located office, you took for granted that everyone understood the rules, that everyone travels to this place during these times. When you're remote, you have to plan for that. But absolutely, use travel and in-person as levers for building that rapport. Well, and I think like along those lines, one of the, like, you know, in speaking with Chase to bring him up again, uh, the head of Remote Aduis, like one of the big things that he works on is the in-person retreats for the company, right? Because those are so important. They don't happen very often. And then when they do happen, you know, you have to be intentional. You need to plan it out to make sure that you use that time as effectively as possible. So I think it is funny that one of the main responsibilities for heads of remote, I don't know if, if you in particular have to deal with this, but it's, you know, planning these things and, you know, how do teams come together? What do they do when they do come together? What is the best way to spend that time together so that it's not wasted? Yeah. In-person strategy is essential. And for a lot of companies that have taken it for granted, this is a new muscle. And it is, there is a bit of irony in the the remote focused leaders needing to pay attention to in-person. But the truth of the matter is it's a people job and you're trying to create an atmosphere where people are empowered to live their best lives and do their best work. And so elements of in-person will almost certainly factor into that experience. So it's sort of uh, heading towards wrapping up. I know that uh, you, you have a hard out and I want to be respectful of your time, but I do have to ask, uh, I watched on your, on your readme actually on, on GitLab. I, I watched an interview uh, of you from 2020 and it seems like it's from the beginning and part of 2020. You guys are in person and no, nothing about COVID was mentioned. And, and the interviewer was kind of asking about what is this whole remote thing? Uh, you know, what is it about being ahead of remote? Like really kind of trying to understand uh, your position. And that obviously was in 2020. Now we're in 2022 recording this. And a lot has happened in two short years. A lot of development in this space has happened in, in, in that short amount of time. When we look forward uh, to 2050, let's say, how do you think remote work has affected the world? Um, how has mainstream remote work affected what we do? How has it affected, uh, you know, just the, the world in, in general? 
I love this question. I think the second and third order effects of remote work at scale are absolutely fascinating topics. I'll give you a few predictions. One, I think we will see a massive reversal of rural depopulation. If you look at the history of towns and cities over the past hundred years, there's this massive outflow of people from small to mid-sized towns and an inflow into these major metropolitan areas. And the reason is simple, access to great career growth. Remote work enables you to redistribute that same career growth back to those small and mid-sized towns. And for many people, there will be no place like home. And this is going to be their wake-up call that they can go back to home or make a new home. And all of these towns will benefit from this injection of um, injection of, of cash, of tax dollars, of of thought, diversity of thought, it's going to be amazing. It, it won't happen overnight, but like all change, it happens slowly and then suddenly. So I would be on the lookout for that. The second is a complete change in how municipalities compete for talent. For the longest time, major cities could build a, uh, build a tax plan where an organization would come in, build a big skyscraper, and they'll say, hey, we're bringing a bunch of jobs to your city. That's not going to work anymore. Instead, municipalities will have to build the best, most livable places in the world and compete with each other on things like green spaces, access to great medical care. Because remember, if you're remote and you can change jobs, advance your career, but never have to move, well, now you're competing on an entirely different landscape. And I think that's a much healthier version of competition. The market will truly win out when you have people that are staying put, even as they evolve their career. And the third thing is an optimistic take, but I am truly bullish about people's ability to use recaptured commute time to move the world forward. I'm an adoptive dad. My wife and I adopted a newborn uh, just over three years ago. And the adoption journey can be a difficult one if you have the rigidity of a nine to five and a commute and you can't leave a certain city and the list goes on and on. And for many people, it becomes a deal breaker. Maybe they feel called to adopt or foster, but it's just so complicated to make it work with their job that they give up on it. And that is an absolute tragedy. And I think if tens of millions of people go remote and they're able to use that recaptured time to put energy into something that matters to them. For us, it's adoption. It could be any other thing for any other person. It's so personalized and individualized. But people will be better stewards of that time than an HR department. People know what makes them tick. I believe everyone has a purpose portfolio. And work is one proverbial stock within the portfolio of purpose that you have. And remote work enables you to invest in the broad, in a broad portfolio, what makes you you? What gives you purpose? What fills you up? When you have that time back in your life, you can think very deeply about that. And a lot of people during COVID have realized that they've neglected portions of their purpose portfolio and work has largely been to blame for that. So progressive organizations stand to gain a lot by changing the way they work and empowering people to work in new ways, to become more time independent, because it enables people to live better lives. And they'll make the connection 
the workplace is enabling them to live better lives, they're going to pour loyalty back into the business. So I'm very bullish on that. And we'll see. Maybe we have this podcast in 10 years and uh, hopefully I, I dreamt too small, if anything, but we'll see. I love that. Well, I have one final question before uh, I let you go because we talked about um, how young people can get into remote work and, and how to make the most of that. And we do have a very young uh, listener base here. So if anyone's listening to this and is thinking, wow, this head of remote job, this it sounds very interesting to me. It sounds like an exciting challenge. It's a community that I want to be a part of and help drive forward. What tips do you have for them in going out there and applying for heads of remote positions or getting involved in the space when it's so young that we don't yet quite have like a figured out way of, hey, you need to get this degree and get this experience and et cetera, et cetera. How does somebody get a head of remote job? I'd say two things here, get involved in the community and get educated. So on the community and uh, community side, we work remotely is amazing. Running remote, there are some really, really passionate uh, communities that you can join. And these communities will help you uh, network and, and make connections that'll be valuable to you. On the education front, GitLab's Remote First Fundamentals course, although it is built for GitLab, it's open to the public. And so you can get certified in our remote principles. We're also standing up a MEC certification. So you can get certified in the management philosophy that has helped GitLab scale and become the remote company that it is. This is, this is a big deal. Like this, and I would say other companies that are, are educating um, individuals on this, uh, go there, get educated, and uh, that will certainly help you as, you as you scout these opportunities out. The last thing I'll add, kind of a bonus, if you're currently in an organization where you think this would be really useful, speak up. People don't know what they don't know. Obvious things are only obvious to whom they are obvious. You may be the first person to have that thought in your organization, and it could be exactly the epiphany that the organization needs to think about things differently and to enlist someone into being the change that you want to see. So don't wait for the world to bend to your will. This is a, an amazing moment to give yourself permission to do things differently. And so raise your hand if you're in that type of situation. That's awesome. Well, Darren, uh, thank you so much again for making the time to come on the podcast. This has been uh, super, super fun. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Let people know uh, where can they connect with you online? Uh, where are you most uh, active on social media? And you know, where can they come learn more about you or, or GitLab? Follow me on LinkedIn and you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Darren Murph on both of those platforms. And be sure to check out allremote.info. That is the homepage for all things remote work and mech at GitLab. And you'll find lots of links to our certifications and plenty of other knowledge. And I'd love for uh, you to contribute back to that if you find something interesting that we can make better. Awesome. Well, we're going to have uh, links to all of that in the show notes, folks. So uh, don't feel like you have to remember all that. Just head on over to the show notes uh, and it'll be right there. Darren, again, thank you so much, man. This has been uh, super fun. 